listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Arbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is June 15th, 2022, and this is a special edition of Lighthearted. We're going to hear a conversation I recorded about a very interesting subject, a place called Sailor's Snug Harbor on Staten Island in New York City. It's not strictly lighthouse related, although there is some relationship to lighthouse history. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Sailor's Snug Harbor and our guest. Sure, Jeremy. Sailor's Snug Harbor is a collection of 19th century buildings on the north shore of Staten Island in New York City. It was founded as a retirement home for sailors using funds bequeathed by Captain Robert Richard Randall when he died in 1801. Sailor's Snug Harbor opened in 1833 and expanded over the years to more than 50 buildings. It was said to be the richest charitable institution in the United States, with farms, a dairy, a bakery, a chapel, a hospital, a concert hall, recreation areas, and more. The Sailor's Home relocated in the 1970s, and the not-for-profit Snug Harbor Cultural Center was formed in 1975 to operate the buildings, and the Staten Island Botanical Gardens managed the gardens. The two organizations merged in 2008 to form Snug Harbor Cultural Center and Botanical Garden. The Cultural Center includes the Staten Island Botanical Garden, the Staten Island Children's Museum, the Staten Island Museum, the Newhouse Center for Contemporary Art, and the Noble Maritime Collection, as well as an art lab and music hall. Sailor Snug Harbor today consists of 26 buildings, including Temple Row, which consists of five interlocking Greek revival buildings. The grounds also include a chapel and a sailor cemetery. Bruce Weir is a descendant of sailors, sea captains, and military veterans with an interest in maritime and military history and genealogy. He's devoted himself to researching the history of Sailor's Snug Harbor, and I had a chance to talk to him about it a while back. Let's listen to our conversation now. I'm speaking this afternoon with Bruce Weir, who is a maritime and military history researcher. And I just want to mention that I became acquainted with Bruce when I sent an email related to uh, the website findagrave.com. I was researching uh, for an article I was writing on Sheffield Island Lighthouse in Connecticut. And I found uh, an illustration of Captain Robert Sheffield, for whom the island is named, on findagrave, the contact there was was Bruce Weir, and he helped me out with information for my article, and that led to a discussion of Sailor's Snug Harbor on Staten Island, New York, which we're going to be talking about today. So thank you so much for joining me today, Bruce. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to you. So first of all, I know you have uh, kind of a personal connection. Uh, how did you get interested in Sailor's Snug Harbor? Well, it was really by accident. I was researching my family history. Over the years, you know, you work on your family history off and on. And I was focusing on my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. Her name is Jean Robinson Weir. And uh, she has some interesting lines that go all the way back to early New York City area. She's uh, got some Dutch, French Huguenots, and English that were like settlers of Terrytown, Sleepy Hollow, even New Amsterdam, some of the Dutch that they're connected to, New Rochelle, and actually Hempstead, Long Island. 
So I was looking, I was focusing on one of her uh, ancestors, whose name was Christian Robinson. And I knew, you know, we had some sailors and that he was a sailor. And I'm going through the, you know, typical censuses and stuff. I see him in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden he disappears around the Civil War time. And now he's older. He came in the 1830s to New York. And so by the time of the Civil War, and he had his kids later, he was like in his 60s or close to 60. And I'm like, where do you go? And all of a sudden I notice he comes up on a census in 1870 and 1880 in this place called Sailor Snook Harbor on Staten Island. So I was like, what's the Snook Harbor place? So I started looking it up and I was shocked. I'm a native New Yorker and uh, my family's been there for hundreds of years uh, in all different parts. Uh, My parents were from Brooklyn. I was born in Queens and grew up on Long Island. I never heard of this place. So I started reading the history. I was fascinated. I, I just was amazed. I found out they had records that are hosted at the SUNY Maritime College. And for the folks that don't know what SUNY means, the State University of New York Maritime College, which is the oldest maritime college, the first one in the United States, started in the 1870s. They sent me records, and I was shocked. It had details on there. It said the town in Denmark he came from. I didn't know that. Now, he came during the Civil War. What I found out from records is he got injured, and that's in the 1860s, and I knew his son was in the, sons were in the Civil War. When he got injured, there was nobody, you know, could help him. He went into Snook Harbor, and the light went on, and I'm like, wow. And what's this? So I read the history. There's two books written about Snook Harbor. So when I read those, I, the history was just amazing. And then I found out they had records for all these guys, and then when I after that, like a year or so after that, uh, I decided this is forgotten. Look at how many guys are in this place. This is a, you know, it's like 10,000 over 140 years. And I got to do something to uh, honor these guys, tell their stories, try to figure out who's, who's in the cemetery. Do they have records? They do of all the people that are in there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, tell their stories. And that was really what it was about. And I was thinking about the reason, I, other reason I did it, I mean, it's a huge project. It's going to take a long time. I knew that. And I was still working, man. Sure. Uh, so we'll get into some, some more of the specific yeah. details, including sure. uh, more about the cemetery in a couple of minutes. But, uh, and you've already said, uh, kind of answered this to some degree already, but what, why is Sailor's Snug Harbor so historically significant? What's really interesting about it is it was the first uh, retirement home for sailors. And this is on a large scale. This is, this is a big place. It ended up 50 buildings. It was at the height, about 1,000 mariners in around 1900. Uh, this is before the Navy had a retirement home. The other thing is how it came about is really amazing. You have this sea captains, the Randalls. It was a father and son. Thomas Randall came from Scotland in, I think, the 1740s to New York. And he uh, was a successful merchant sailor. And then during the French-Indian War, he, he became a privateer. You know, they were merchant sailors that, to augment their navies, they would hire merchant sailors to put guns on their ships and attack primarily the supply ships of their enemy. So he did that. He was successful. Like the name of the ship, he had a couple of ships, but the one privateer was called Fox, which I thought was a cool name. But he caught quite a few friendships. And the, to get people to do this, they could keep, uh, entice them to uh, do this. They would keep half of whatever they captured. 
So he became wealthy and they, he started like an import export uh, business. He was prominent in New York business circles. He helped start the Chamber of Commerce. Even before, before when we were still a colony, he was interested in helping other people. So sailors and captains would get lost at sea, would die at sea, and their families become destitute. So he started the Marine Society in New York, which still exists today. 1770, got it chartered under King George III. He also uh, was a New York Chamber of Commerce. He was, I think he was a, uh, on the board of directors of the Bank of New York. He dies in 1797, and then a friend and attorney was Alexander Hamilton. And then the son dies in 1801, and his will started. So I think it was like the first will that uh, was used to create a foundation. So that gets it started. Then there's all these lawsuits against it. Took like 20 years, but but the, the it created this board of trustees, which is interesting to keep it going. So it wasn't people getting elected; it was positions. So that trustees still exist today, and they still financially help. So right. I don't know when the first foundations in the United States were started, but it's one of the first. Uh, yeah. And it definitely helped a lot of people, including my ancestor. You've done uh, a lot of research, as you've said, about the Snug Harbor, the history of the place, and you've researched the lives of some of the sailors who lived there. I'm wondering, just in general, who were those men? Were many of them military veterans? Uh, were a lot of them merchant sailors, fishermen? or who, who were they? Well, to get into Snug Harbor... You had to be a sailor for at least 10 years and then sail under U.S. flag for five years. The only other place that was similar to it, and I think they got the idea, was the British had a a Royal Navy uh, hospital in Greenwich. That's the only thing you could look at. So, but so other all these merchant sailors around the world, they all knew about Snuck Harbor because they were sailing around the world. When you look, it's amazing what these guys did back mm-hmm. then. So they all knew about it. And uh, they had a saying, I'll see you in Snuck Harbor <laughs> one day. And so even guys that were, there's a lot of people from all these different countries when you're looking at, back in the records. They're from all the port cities in the United States. So I, I found some names that'd be of interest, some of the guys I found so far. Robert Sheffield, you mentioned, he was in Revolutionary War. He survived the prison ships. But then I, uh, there's a guy that in the War of 1812 named John Strain, who s- sailed on the USS Saratoga during the, the Battle of Plattsburgh on Lake Champlain in uh, 1814. He ended up in Snook Harbor in the 1870s. Uh, he was really young when he was you know, on the Saratoga. His descendants have posted stuff on my Facebook page. They have a medallion that was given by Captain Thomas McDonough. And that was a key battle where McDonough, you know, defeated the British there. Captain John uh, Jan Weber was an officer on the USS Monitor during the famous battle with the uh, CSS uh, Virginia, or known as the Merrimack. He was the last officer to die uh, that was on connected with the USS Monitor. And they was, you look at the newspapers, so he died in, uh, oh, in 1909. The newspapers had big articles about him in there. 
Um, that was one of the things I looked at is looking at the newspapers like Harper's Weekly, every couple of years would write big articles about Snook Harbor. There's a guy named William Cushing, who was the captain of the famous clipper ship Dreadnought. That one set a lot of speed records between Liverpool and New York. And then there's uh, Captain George Nelson Armstrong. Now, his story is pretty amazing. He also was in the Civil War. And then in the 1870s, so he is sailing on a ship called the Templar, September to July, uh, 1879. He's sailing from New York to San Francisco around Cape Horn. Well, as they're getting down, they went, coming down the South Atlantic, it is storm, get the mass, they pull into Brazil, to Rio, and the ship starts getting infected with malaria. As they, after they pull out and are leaving, guys start getting sick, the whole crew, he gets sick. Now in those days, a lot of people didn't realize the captains, if they had a family with young kids, they bring them with them. They're on the ship. And his wife gets sick and dies. I have, like most of the crew dies. He's sick, he's like delirious. He had a teenage daughter. What's amazing about the story is he had a teenage daughter working with one of the mates, literally sailed the ship around Cape Horn all the way to San Francisco. So the ship, usually it took like 100 plus days to get between New York, sailing all the way around there. This thing came in months late. They thought the ship was gone. When it showed up in San Francisco, they, the people freaked out. They, could, they thought it was a ghost ship. They couldn't believe it because it was going so slow and it took so much time. Mm. Uh, the insurance companies, of course, were happy. <laughs> And she got like, they gave him like a thousand dollars worth of gold and it was a big deal. You also uh, talked a bit about earlier about Alexander Hamilton, but could you just kind of recap maybe a bit about Hamilton's uh, associations with the starting of Sailor Snug Harbor, but, and then I'd like to get into some of the other notable people in American history who relate to, to Sailor Snug right. Harbor in one area or another. So I'll talk about more about Hamilton. I mentioned that he helped the Randalls. He actually drafted the will that for Robert Richard Randall when he died in 1801. And in the will, he created this, this uh, trust, this foundation um, to use uh, the Randalls, when their money owned all this property, it was called Minto Farm, which is in um, the Washington Square area of Greenwich Village. They owned the land north of it, like 20 acres. They bought it in 1790. Um, so by 1801, that's what they're going to use, plus the money from his company. He gave money. He had some sibling. He had one sibling still alive uh, or two, a, a sister and a brother. Gave some money to them, gave some money to his, uh, the people that worked for him. And then he gave the rest of it. And you, they thought they used the farm as the retirement home. So, and it says in there for injured or destitute sailors or decrepit is the word they used back then. Mm-hmm. But the language of it had like eight positions, um, created this board in perpetuity, which was like unheard of back then. And it had the mayor of New York. And so when the first meetings came about the trust, Dewitt Clinton is the mayor of New York. And so he's like on the first board of the trustees of Sun Harbor. The idea was these are positions that would go on, whoever was in them would be on, these, on this board which was really smart. You could keep it going. And then he would use the money and resources. Well, there were all these lawsuits. And it, and it was one thing he told the Randalls when they were coming up with this, 
trying to come up with the idea of what to do with their money and stuff. Cause Robert, he didn't have any children. He wasn't married. He was a bachelor. And he, he was like, I, I love the quote is kind of like, he told him it came from the sea. You should give it back to the sea. Mm. And, you know, if you know Hamilton's history coming from, you know, the Caribbean and all that kind of stuff, it's just, it's just like, well, that's really cool. And it just shows you that early the founders, Hamilton, you know, he was involved in a lot of other things outside of the government stuff that people don't know. This is one of them. The Randalls and you know, the mentality was they wanted to help people because sailors, they got injured or hurt or uh, old. They became destitute and they were all over. You see the pretty pictures of New York City Harbor with the, you know, clipper ships. You don't see the streets a couple blocks in and they were just lined with homeless uh, injured sailors. There was no safety net. And so that these guys that they thought about trying to help people like that just kind of tells you, you know, that everybody wasn't just greed, you know, greed and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was amazing people in the beginning. Hamilton was one of them. And so were these Randall guys. Lighthouse buffs know also that Hamilton was the first person in charge of our federal lighthouse system in mm-hmm. August 1789 when they passed the act that created the, the lighthouse establishment. He was the first guy in charge of that. So. It's just amazing. Like the customs house in New York. I mean, he started the whole, you know, revenue cutter service. He started customs mm-hmm. house. You know, they tax the ships coming in and out. Use that to fund the government. That was like the major yeah. source of income back in the day. When you think about it, it's incredible. But that there were these Randall guys or other people like that in a lot of different cities that you don't hear about. Did some really good deeds that helped people. And it helped me, me, myself from college and my ancestor when he was, uh, hurt uh, in the 1800s. I mean, they would have been destitute, uh, you know, really until the sons got back and that kind of thing. And he stayed here. My ancestors stayed in there. Um, I think some of these sailors went in there because they were used to being at sea so long that when they got older, they didn't want to be a burden on their families. So they could leave and come, you know, they could come to Sunk Harbor and leave. They had shops in there where they built model ships that Mm -hmm. they have the noble museum. I know you're going to talk about, they have this unbelievable, uh, model ship collection that were made by, and some of these are, you know, clipper ships and stuff the guys sailed on. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, amazing when you see all that. Moving along also, you yep. mentioned Thomas Melville before. Obviously there's a connection to, to Herman yeah. Melville. Right. Yeah, Thomas Melville was Herman Melville's youngest brother. And he became, he was a sea captain and he, was, he sailed out um, in the Pacific all, all around for a number of years. And then 1867, he got the job to be the governor of Sailor Snook Harbor. Now, at that time, you know, Melville had published Taipei and Moby to call that earlier, but this was in the phase in the 1860s where his books weren't selling well. And he became, uh, came back to, he was originally from Manhattan, New York, and he came back and he became a, Customs house inspector. And so he was working there. And then when his brother got the job, and, and that was a big job. I mean, they have like a whole separate mansion for the governor of Snook Harbor. But Melville becomes the governor. And so Herman's going there on holidays. Thomas has got a family. There's photos of him at Snook Harbor. But Melville was innovative. And he when he came in, he redid all the records. The application form, the registers, he had all pre-printed forms before that. They were just blank sheets, like in a notebook, and they just wrote little notes in there. And they had some weird coding system. I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm focused on the old registers from the 1830s 
to the when Melville redid them in 1869, those original registers, figuring out who's on them and that is just, so I'm trying to build an index. Thomas Melville redid all that, but he was tough. A lot of the sailors didn't like him. Sadly, he died in 1884. I think he had a heart attack and died because he was just in his 50s. Herman Melville was 11 years older than him, but Herman Melville never got over that. He really got depressed after his brother passed away. Um, so 1867 and 1884 is when Thomas Melville's there, and uh, he did some good things, but he was he was a task you know master, and he was I think he was tough on the employees there too. You know there was there was some you read about some things about them uh, you know getting upset with him. So there's another connection to lighthouses. Uh, William H. Wilson is buried at Sailor Snug Harbor. He was married to Ida Lewis, who is probably the most famous not just the most famous woman lighthouse keeper in American history, but probably the most famous lighthouse keeper at Newport, Rhode Island, Lime Rock. They were married very briefly, and us lighthouse buffs who maybe know a lot about Ida Lewis know virtually nothing about William H. Wilson, her, her husband, for a brief time. What have you learned about William H. Wilson? Well, I went and um, got his application form was in the archives, and it had a lot of details about him. He appears that he sailed for like 27 years. He was from Black Rock, that's uh, Connecticut, where he was born. But it looks like he had some relatives that lived in Greenport, Long Island. And I know there's a ferry, you know, it's just like kind of right across the sound. And I can gather he probably bounced. But when he, for, he sailed for 27 years, starting in 1859, he first sailed. And the first ship they would ask on their application, the first and last ships they sailed on, which is always interesting to me. And the first ship they sailed on was the Marianne, um, not Boom, I believe is how you pronounce it. And that was one of these clipper ships that was going back and forth, kind of like the dreadnought, back and forth to Liverpool on a regular schedule. So that's the first one he sailed on. And that ship later in his career, they moved it to San Francisco and it was sailing from Australia back and forth. So he starts off on like one of these serious clipper ships and then he transitioned to become a coastal sailor. And in, in the records there, it, it mentions that he fell on that first ship. He fell and down and got injured on that ship. I can imagine he was just a newbie you know, sailor, and he was probably overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, if you want to know what it was like to be a crew on those ships, dancing around on all those masts, there's a, there's a video on this briefly called for the Peking was the ship that was at South Street Seaport for a long time. It's an iron hole ship. It's a little later, but in the 1920s, a guy that was on a crew, he was from Massachusetts filmed going around Cape Horn. It was one of the last full riggers that went Cape Horn. And it's, he's got, I can't believe he held the camera. <laughs> that thing is going through the, you know, crazy storms. These guys are hanging on a rig. I mean, it's just like how people didn't fall off that stuff yeah. and die. I don't know. Yeah, I know. It's um, pretty common. So he was, so he, he came into Snook Harbor, uh, you know, he, he, he mostly sailed out of Gloucester and uh, New York. Um, so he was doing a lot of coastal stuff out of there, you see. Um, he names um, various captains. His references are always interesting to me where these captains were. And some of them were from Port Jefferson, Long Island, which is interesting. He has some from Bridgeport and that. Um, there's always notes in there. And then he, um, so he sailed coastal for 20 years, seven years doing bank fishing. So maybe when he was in Gloucester, he was doing that. 
then after that, he's working for some iron company. He stopped in 1886. He becomes a captain. At that time, he, just, he re retires from that, and he worked for some copper company in Bridgeport, which is interesting. And then he did that for a number of years. And then he, he entered uh, Slug Harbor in 1911, and he noted that he had rheumatism, which is another one of those old, you know, <laughs> diagnoses that, you know, what's rheumatism, you know? So I always find that one interesting. Yeah, aches and, and pains, basically, yeah. Yeah, probably had arthritis is probably another name for that or some kind of nerve disorder thing. Or something. Sometimes I look at the handwriting because they had a sign on the documents and you can kind of notice the guy's handwriting is a mess. So he might have had arthritis and some kind of nerve condition or something when you get older. Yep. Um, and he dies in 1925 and he's buried in a cemetery. So Ida um, Lewis, when they got married in 1870, so he's sailing in 1859, you know, they get married then and then they separated. But on his application, he, he, he noted that they were still married. I think they separated, but they never got legally divorced, right. which is interesting. I found him on censuses in the 1880s, living with his relatives in uh, Black Rock. Mm -hmm. He's noted on there. Now, these guys, you know, he might have come, he'd been sailing for months and then come back, you know, for a period of time and then sail out. You know, that, that I noticed that. And then he doesn't appear until the 1920s, uh, on the 1920 census yeah. uh, in Snug Harbor. Well, it's good to know any details about him at all, because, again, uh, Ida Lewis never talked about him after she came back to Newport after being uh, married with him. That's how it is with a lot of this. There's, it's hard to find sailors because a lot of times they don't appear in censuses. You can't find mm -hmm. anything. They had a family. You know, they would list them and they when they were out sailing. But if they were just on their own, they just... You know, in between ships, they were in flop houses, basically, that were down by the docks. Yeah. And they, so they just don't appear. They didn't do, like, censuses of ships because they were gone for months at a time. Yeah. So I find descendants, when they find the memorials on Find a Grave, they're like, when I give them the records, you know, they realize it's the guy. They've been searching him for years. You know, it's one of those brick walls in genealogy, they call it, where they can't, they got a person at dead ends, they can't find him. And... The detail, that's why I was amazed when I saw the details of these records. I was just thanking Thomas Melville every day I look at him. <laughs> yeah. But I'm amazed that, you know, nobody cared about this stuff. They just all office stuff and they just were throwing it out, you know. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the buildings and the site there uh, that exists today. Uh, I, I understand many of the buildings at Sailor's Snug Harbor are now referred to as the Snug Harbor Cultural Center and Botanical Garden. Uh, which includes several museums. Uh, if you could maybe describe a little bit about how that's, uh, how the buildings are being used today. And I'm interested in your kind of your take on that. Do you think it's a good use of the site? Mm -hmm. the, the, there were originally 50 buildings and, and it's a campus, like it was 150 acre campus. Now it's like 80 acres. Mm -hmm. And there's a mixture of uh, architectural styles, which are really neat. The first buildings that you see when you, come uh, to Snook Harbor, you see these five um, Greek revival buildings in the front. And they're known as a building A through E. And those have have some museums in them. And they have columns, Greek revival. And, and the architect was a famous architect. His name was Menard uh, Lefevre, who was the first one that, that pushed Greek revival architecture. He wrote 
guidebooks that were published and used by architects and builders all through the United States back in, the, he designed them in the 1830s, the first three center ones. So it would be, uh, you know, uh, C and uh, B and D. Those were the first ones built in the 1830s and 1840s. And then the other two, so the uh, A and E, those were built in the 1880s later. The interesting buildings when you go there, the A has the Staten Island History Museum in it. And you go in there and they've changed the inside of it a lot. It's nice, but it's modern. So mm -hmm. it kind of throws you off when you come in there. And they have the history of Staten Island. There's a lot of interesting stuff like the Vanderbilt's from Staten Island. B, I don't think it's being used, but C is the center building and it's got the column, Greek revival columns on it, but it has really cool, that was the administrative building. That was like the first building built when they opened it in 1833. And when you go inside there, there's a hallway, it's like a two-story, has big vaulted ceilings, it has an osculus dome in it. When you walk in, it opens up to this big, uh, like, great hall. And it has a staircase that goes up that's wrought iron and has like a old woods wing coating on it. That's really cool. Um, but the, the, in the ceilings and in the walls, they have nautical, uh, like frescoes painting them. They're just like amazing. And then they have celestial scenes, almost like you're looking at a night sky out on the sea with stars and moon and stuff like that in there. And the lighting is the way they did it was, it's amazing when you go in there, it's kind of startling. And then they also have above, because it's got the high ceilings, above the doors, they have the old transoms and they have stained glass with uh, maritime scenes in there, pictures of ships, stuff like that, that look like Tiffany glass to me. It's just, uh, and they're very large and they're just uh, amazing. I don't know how, how they did that. Uh, so that's building six. So I recommend people, it's called the Newhouse Art Center. So it has like modern art inside that building. It, see, in the 60s, they wanted to sell um, Snug Harbor and develop it because it's on the waterfront facing New York Bay. It faces the north. And uh, they wanted to put high-rise condos and stuff. And in the 60s in New York City, they started trying to preserve like Grand Central Terminal. That was the first time they started protecting historic buildings in New York City. New York City is just known for tearing things down and rebuilding. There's, there's not a lot of really old, old architecture. Old there is like late 1800s. Yeah. Very few things before that. So this happened at that time. So that New York City started a landmark commission, which would landmark buildings and stop from being destroyed. They did the Grand Central Terminal was the like first effort. This was like right after, right around that time. And so they landmarked the building. So that stopped them from doing it. And then actually Jackie Kennedy got involved because John Kennedy was a set, was a uh, captain in World War II, naval captain. Plus he was into sailing and stuff. The family was. And she came and helped and got New York City. She knew John Lindsay was the mayor, got the city to buy it from Snook Harbor. And then they decided to do a cultural center. So this is just amazing so preserve these old buildings that are just awesome the collection of not just greek revival there's bow arts there's victorian there's like all styles over time um it's just and then that it was it had a farm you know as part of the complex and they turned into botanical gardens it's just really nice it's like a park and a college campus combined into one mm. so going through the buildings next to the center building c administrative center building which is now the New House Art Museum, is the Noble Maritime Museum. And it's named after John Noble, who was a maritime artist in New York City. 
And he was around at the time while this was happening, was involved in helping preserve Snuck Harbor too, along with Jackie Kennedy and, and other people. That's a really interesting building to go. So that's building D. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's to the left if you're looking at them. And uh, if you go in there, they have a, a mixture of John Noble's art. Also, they have a Sailor Snuck Harbor collection because Sailor Snuck Harbor, they, especially when uh, Governor Trask was the governor of Snook Harbor, he collected all kinds of maritime art and he hung them in all the dormitory buildings for, so all the mariners could see them. Then they, have an ex, they had an extensive collection of maritime art. So they have a lot of that in that building. Then they also have a collection of model ships. So people enter into model ships. These are ships that were built by, a lot of them were built, almost all, maybe almost all of them, by the Sailor Snook Harbor Mariners themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're all the way from sailing ships, of ships they sailed on. So they had workshops in these buildings in the basements. And they could make, you know, so guys did model ships there. They did all kinds of crafts that they knew in these uh, workshops. And some of them built these model ships. So it's amazing to see the ships actually built by the Mariners that sailed on them. Behind that, there's annex buildings, so you can see where there were dining rooms and stuff, and they had hallways built between them. So this is way back in 1800s, because so, a lot of these guys had fallen, you know, on sailing ships, they had fallen up and paralyzed, so they were in wheelchairs, so they had hallways interlocking all the buildings together, so they didn't have to go outside in the wintertime. So there's like a subset of buildings behind the main five. Then behind that, they built a music hall that is the second oldest music hall in New York City behind Carnegie Hall was built in the 1890s. I think it seats like a thousand people. David Bowie did a concert there in in the, the 2000s. Um, that's pretty neat. And then they have a chapel. And then they had a big church that was a miniature version of St. Paul's in London that you see in photographs. But they tore that down in, in the 1950s. So they had a hard time in the 50s maintaining some of these. Uh, and then really what hurt him was during the depression, the real estate values dropped of all the properties they had. So the income dropped. And then with the onset of social security and things like that, they couldn't, um, there wasn't the demand as far as the number of sailors that needed help that want uh, for Snuck Harbor, they would get social security or pensions. So it dwindled down. So by the fifties, some of these older buildings, so they had a hospital back uh, going south from the main buildings they had a big hospital and they had a tuberculosis sanitarium which is if you ever seen them they're, they're they're shaped like an x because of airflow they thought they had all these windows and they thought airflow would help them because uh, you know tuberculosis affects your lungs but they tore those down so when you go there today though some of those buildings are gone but they had other maintenance buildings workshops and they have a children's museum in one of these bigger buildings that they used uh, f- for maintenance. And then um, they have like a, um, like a uh, art lab in one of the buildings back in there. I think they, they have like a stuff for music. Uh, I know a lot of uh, uh, different groups, music groups use some of their buildings, some of these interior buildings when you go back. Um, and then when you go to the, I guess it's to the West, there's a road that goes down, goes North South. And there's uh, where the governor's mansion was. And then they had these series of interesting Victorian cottages, a whole bunch of them going down this road. And that's where some of the, uh, from looking at it, 
the people that were like the managers of different uh, departments, uh, you know, the guy that maintained maintenance, like a doctor and uh, some of the other, you know, financial people, they actually lived and then had other buildings for, they had like a matron's building for the, the women at work there. You know, some of them came from the surrounding areas, but early on, there wasn't a lot around there. So they actually had facility buildings for people to stay that work there. And they had one for uh, guys, maintenance guys, and they had the farm was way in the back. So when you look at old pictures I have on my Facebook page, you see a, uh, a bird's eye view looking at it from like, say you're in New York Bay looking at, you could see a lot of these buildings uh, and how close it was to the water there. They had their own dock with ships they could go from Manhattan back and forth. They didn't have to go down. And it was a train line actually doesn't exist today, but actually it was like a little commuter railroad that went down to where the Staten Island Ferry is. But it's pretty close to Staten Island Ferry. If you came across from Manhattan, got on a Staten Ferry, got off, there's a bus you can get on. It's a half dozen stops, goes right along the shoreline and boom, you see this big campus um, right there. And then you have uh, like a, a Asian Chinese gardens uh, going down. Actually, if you go past those cottages on the, on that side, on that road uh, to the south, yeah, that's where all the botanical gardens are over there. So a lot of people you see from the area go there. They, they, they uh, from talking to people in the area, they, get, they like it. It's like a big park to them. And they like that there's uh, activities there. A lot of kids you see going to like the Children's Museum. It's it's really a neat place. I was I was surprised when I I grew up in New York City area didn't know nothing didn't know it existed, yeah. and then the cemetery is further to the south. Um, that was part of the 150 acres got separated um, in the 1920s. They sold off the properties mm -hmm. around it, um, and it's about two blocks south of where you see there's a gate that goes all around the campus, and they had little guard uh, gatehouses. You can go in, and those are cool-looking uh, buildings, also. Yeah. And they had them, uh, so it got chopped up as far as the cemetery. But they kept the main part of it; they contained it. Um, you know, they mm -hmm. kept it all together. So the city, New York City Parks Department, maintains the parks and everything with it. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the Noble Maritime Collection right. and Museum. I interviewed uh, Megan Beck, the curator there, and uh, of course, they're the steward for uh, Robin's Reef Lighthouse in the harbor. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're doing a, a lot of good work, you know, and again, this is something that I'm, I've just learned about recently, largely thanks to you. I, I've been to Staten Island a few times, but I had just very vaguely heard of uh, Sailor Snug Harbor. So this is all it's interesting. I've run into people that grew up on Staten Island. Yeah. Didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. it yeah. You know, because the, when they built the Verrazano bridge, it opened up the Southern part and they did a lot of residential development in like the sixties, and 70. So people, this is all in the older northern part. Yeah. And I could see, and there's a highway that goes from the Verrazano across and splits kind of Staten Island, like the northern part. And I could see where people just, you know, didn't get up in there. And, yeah. and it closed, you know, you know, over time, closed in the 70s. So yeah, speaking of that, uh, it that site closed as the sailors home in the 1970s. Right. This, the uh, trustees of Sailor Snug Harbor still exist. Yes, in this, when they closed yeah. in the seventies and in seventy six, they sold. You know, but they sold actually a couple of transactions. I think it's seventy two and seventy four. But by seventy six, that's when it closed. They actually moved down to um, 
sea level North Carolina. And it was a partnership, I believe, with uh, Duke University had like a hospital or something down there. So it's on the southern part of the Outer Banks. Uh, I vacationed in the Carolinas, so I know. But, um, you know, where's sea level? But um, it existed for another 30 years, much smaller operation, and it, it closed in the early 2000s. Uh, and in, in the interim time, um, between the 70s and the 2000s, the trust sold their properties in Greenwich Village in the Washington Square Park area, which was like 20 acres of like buildings. <laughs> it was a, you know, it's, it's kind of like from Broadway to Fifth Avenue up to 10th Street to Washington Square Park. It was a huge area. They, uh, they liquidated all those and created an endowment. And that's what they use today to financially help merchant sailors that have financial issues when they're, um, or they get injured and they, you know, or they get old and they have financial problems. They still help like I think 300 a year and they have an office in Manhattan and the uh, Southern part of Manhattan. And it's, it's amazing. So from 1801 to today, so I don't know how many foundations in the United States are that old, but I don't think many, they might be no. the oldest. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's gotta be up there for sure. It's, it's great uh -huh. that they're still doing that, that good work. Right. Uh, and you mentioned the cemetery a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. I understand the the cemetery is actually still, uh, under the management of the trustees. Yes. When they sold the properties to New York City, it didn't include the cemetery. Mm -hmm. And the cemetery was on the southern part of the property. Uh, in the 1920s, they sold off the land around it. It's a residential area called Man uh, Randall Manor. And part of it has a pond that is a city park that's next to adjacent to it. So it's about two blocks South. It's on prospect Avenue. So when you go down that road with the cottages on head towards that, you'll pass a uh, road and it prospects the next block over it's to the left and you'll see this pond and then you'll see this red brick wall. And if you look to the left, you'll see a gate and there's some houses actually on that like right next to the cemetery. And it almost looks like it's part of a driveway for this house, but you see this gate kind of in the backyard area with this red brick wall that goes around. And that's the cemetery. Uh, it has no signage on it. Um, it's eight acres and there's 6,500 mariners. So of the 10,000 that um, resided, that I, uh, from looking at the records, that's kind of what I calculate, probably almost 11,000 between uh, 1833 and 1976, there's 6,500 of them died and are buried in that cemetery, including my ancestor. There's only like 15 headstones in the cemetery. Uh, they had some problems with vandalism. So they took some out and they put them in some of the buildings, but uh, there's some notable guys buried in the cemetery. Some of them I mentioned earlier, Probably the most famous one is an officer in the USS Monitor, uh, Captain uh, John Weber. He was the last officer to die uh, from the USS Monitor. Um, he was at the battle with the Merrimack of the CSS Virginia. He's buried in there. And then there's a lot of, I've been researching the War of 1812 guys. There's all kinds of uh, guys that were in there. John Strain, I mentioned earlier, he was at USS Saratoga. There's a guy named Cornelius Rose I found who was in the War of 1812 also, but he was also in the Mexican War and the Seminole Wars. And he served on the USS Enterprise. He was actually on 
served under Stephen Decatur and was on the uh, frigate, the president. Um, and then he, he was also on the USS Constitution. So, you know, all the, the, the USS Constellation, Constitution, the uh, Potomac, all these ships, uh, there's a lot of these guys are in there. So Cornelius Rose, I think he was in like 20 something battles in the records he notices. Another guy, Charles Risby, he was also in the USS Constitution, actually in the War of 18, when it fought the uh, HMS Guerriere, which is a famous battle. He's served, he was on that ship too. So there's, um, there's also what's this interesting about Snook Harbor that I haven't mentioned was the requirement to get into Snook Harbor, they kept it pretty simple. And you had to sail under U.S. flag for five years. And I think you had to be a mariner for 10. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of the mariners are from all over the world. And they're of all colors and persuasions. And that's interesting. Um, Harper's Weekly used to come to Snook Harbor and wrote articles I found in the 1860s, 1870s. And they would just mention some of these guys' names and there was a guy named Jacob Morris, who was a black sailor, who at that time was 103 years old. And he actually sailed, he's, he's in a group, he's, the reporter's talking to them, and you could, a lot of these guys all sailed together. But he, I haven't found anybody older than him. He died a year later. But, um, but looking through the records, uh, and if you know about maritime history, back they were having a hard time in the age of sail, finding enough people. There was so much commerce going on to, to fill out the crews. There were a lot of people of color uh, on these ships. Yeah. And, you know, when you read these old newspaper articles, you could tell these guys really enjoyed sailing together. And at one time or another, they probably all saved each other's lives on the ships especially the old sail ships. It was crazy in storms. People got washed overboard. You know, if you're climbing those sails, it's insane. And, um, you know, when you're in close quarters, if you've, people in the military, I played a lot of sports growing up. Growing up in New York City area with all kinds of different people from all different backgrounds. And actually thinking about it, uh, I mentioned my early ancestors, but I am also a product of many immigration groups. I'm, I'm a mutt ethnically, all kinds of different groups. And I was to see that there was a place like Snook Harbor that allowed, they didn't care what your background was. They, uh, when you see that in the records and they actually have some photos from the around 1900, you see photos of these guys. It, it just makes you feel like they actually, people did care back in those days and they got beyond the whole, you know, color and ethnicity thing and uh, it's just nice to see that and go through these records i like to read uh maritime books it's interesting when new books are coming out i'll get i'll look at them and i then once i read about the 1800s or even early 1900s and i look to see if any of these sailors were in snuck or you know or and sometimes i find them quite a few and one book recently i think came out 2020 by a guy named skip finley was about whaling captains of color from, um, I think they sailed out of New Bedford back in the 1800s. So he had 50 captains. So I looked through and I found one of the captains ended up in Snook Harbor and his name is Severino Pierce. And what's interesting is 
you know, in the whaling industry, there were stops all around the world in these islands. Well, there's a, a significant, he, in his book, he's focusing on guys from the Azores. Well, I start looking at the barrel records of Snook Harbor, and guess what? I find quite a few guys from the Azores in there. So, uh, and then all these other crazy islands in the Pacific, like the Navigator Islands, I learned, uh, it's the Samoan Islands now, uh, things like that. These obscure islands, and these guys ended up in there. But uh, they welcomed, you know, anybody that sailed that, that needed help when they got older. Yeah. You know, even back to the 1830s, because uh, I think uh, Jacob came, he was in his, uh, came in the, I think he came, uh, in the eight, 1850s or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's just interesting. It's unexpected, you know, and it's a positive thing. Uh, going back to the start, you know, with Hamilton helping the, the Randall start Snuck Harbor. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, a positive message, even going back to the beginning of the United States, uh, that there was mm-hmm. a place that in an innovative way to finance it. I don't know. I, it's, I, it'd be something that interesting to see somebody do the similar thing today, you know, where they yeah. use real estate income to finance a retirement facility for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting yeah. idea, even all, going all the way back. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great history. It's a great story. Uh, and uh, again, uh, back to the cemetery, yes. I know you've had uh, an idea that maybe there should be some sort of memorial involved in the cemetery yeah i want to put them uh since there's nothing in, in there and it's you know over time they used head, regular headstones and they used like metal crosses and then they used just flat stones that there might be some that sunk down the ground you can't you know so looking at the old maps i found 1940s and 1970s maps of the cemetery and they show you where the roads there were paths in the cemetery and where they went and from the main gate, there's a you go in, and then there was a turning circle, and it kind of forked out in different directions with different paths going out from this main kind of circle. And I thought that would be a great place to put a monument to honor all the 6,500 mariners that are buried in the cemetery. And since they were, uh, you know, some were naval, merchant, some were in the revenue cutter service that became the Coast Guard, it'd be cool to have um you know emblems from those different services on it um merch marine naval and the and the coast guard and then have something significant in there kind of like you would see in the civil war or uh world war one monuments like an obelisk type um that's what i'd like to put in there and then also i'd like to have a service where descendants i've i've found 60 to 70 descendants so far, but I put my find a grave memorials out there. Uh, every month I get a couple of people contacting me that are usually researching their family and are having a hard time finding sailors. And they find, they see that, see that. And they're like, I think this is my ancestor. And then I get, I help them get the records. And then they're, they're so surprised to find out about them. So to honor all these guys, it's sad that they're forgotten you know, it's, it's, it's a story that's just forgotten the time. A lot of people don't know about it. It's a positive mm-hmm. story and really should do something to honor these guys. So I've tried some things in the past that didn't work out, but now I'm thinking of trying to, you know, the, the trustees own it, but they, they're for insurance liability. They don't want to do anything. 
and with it. So I'm trying to find a home for it that will allow me access to do something with it, to put a monument and then have a memorial service around Memorial Day since a lot of these guys are, are uh, military veterans. And then also in New York, that's until the pandemic happened, they have Fleet Week is like right around Memorial Day, which is cool because the Navy comes in and does a big thing in New York City. So it'd be cool to have it right around that time, you know, each year and then, you know, or also do something during Veterans Day, but just open it, you know, just for that, for descendants to come to see, um, pay respects, because some of them have come and posted on my Facebook page, they could get in there. These guys are from everywhere. So what's interesting is I don't see a lot of people from the New York City area. <laughs> their descendants are all over the world. There's folks in Europe. There was a lot of Europe. A lot of these guys are from Europe and the Caribbean and where, I mean, they're all over the place. And that's where their descendants are all over the place. You know, not, not many in New York City. Uh, and I think that's probably why there's not a lot, have been awareness or focus on it in the past um, because of that. Um, mm -hmm. So my idea is, okay, either I got to create a, my own organization and have them donate to me, but I don't, I don't reside in New York City. I live in Ohio. Be kind of hard. But there is a group in Staten Island that I've talked to that they have old colonial cemeteries and stuff that have been abandoned. So there is a friends of abandoned cemeteries and I've mm -hmm. chatted with them in the past and I'm trying to reach out to them now. But my thought is to maybe leverage, uh, you know, some of the history with Alexander Hamilton. I know there's societies out there with Alexander Hamilton that might be interested in helping, but I'm trying to, you know, between the descendants and some other groups maybe raise enough money to maintain the cemetery. So if it got to a nonprofit, you know, they'd have, you know, nonprofits are always, uh, especially uh, like the Friends of Man cemeteries, they got 11 cemeteries in there. So it's a lot of money. So to maintain the cemetery, you're going to need some funding. So a way, you know, get some of these groups and try to raise some money, not just to do the monument, to maintain the cemetery and then give the trustees a way to donate it um, you know, they don't have to worry about it and, uh, somebody else gets the responsibility to maintain it and, yeah. and fund it. So that's kind of my idea. And if somebody reaching out to some of the, some of these, uh, groups to help me, um, do it, uh, cause it's just a, sh a shame. I mean, I, you know, you know, yeah. I have my personal cause my ancestors in there, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I just the history of it, even if I didn't, I'm a history buff, so even even if I didn't uh, have a relative in the cemetery, I I would be trying to do the same thing. Um, yeah. It seems like a great idea to me. The monument makes a lot of sense to me. The other thing I want to do is I'm researching the records, so I'm writing biographies, mm -hmm. short biographies. Um, it's going to take me a long time to go through all these guys. I'm focusing on the cemetery first, and then from the records, guys that were there that were died and buried in other places. Uh, or ones that were there and left. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking of also, you know, writing some books and and uh, maybe do mm -hmm. podcasts about these guys as I'm going through researching them yeah. to make people aware, tell their stories. It's just getting the stories out. Yeah, I would encourage you to do all of the above. And you have a Facebook page dedicated to it, right? Right. It's the Mariners of Sailor Snark Harbor History and Genealogy. Mm -hmm. Um I have that. If there's some of these stories are on there, I'm going to put some more of them on. 
Yep. Um, and you see descendants finding that page. Sometimes they find that and start asking questions and realize I have information, you know, about mm -hmm. there's records. So you see them posting on there. But some of the research you've done on uh, the sailors, the thousands of uh, sailors, especially the ones buried in the cemetery at Sailors Snow Harbor, a lot of that's uh, you've entered on findagrave.com, right? Which yeah, I, the, the names you see, if you go to the Sailor, Sailor Snook Harbor Cemetery, mm -hmm. so find a graves by cemetery. So you build a like, cemetery and then you add people to it. Yep. So there's 5,600 in there. So I went over the last couple of years, photographed the, the burial registers up between 1834 is when the first guy was buried there up to like 1950. And I want to get the rest of them up to 1976 so you can have a complete cemetery. So I got those. And then I started photographing other registers. They had like these giant, um, they called them inmate uh, registers is what they referred to back in the day. Um, instead of, I call them mariner registers, but they're actually, they were called pensioner registers were the first uh, early registers were called. And then they called the uh, ones when, um, Thomas Melville revamped them in the 1860s. He created these big volumes, like 1,200 pages, and called them in right. So I've been photographing some of those because they have interesting details. And then there's they have the applications from the 1860s on that have all kinds of details going forward. And I think what happened was they used them up until 1902 or three. these big registers that have a lot of summary information from the applications and then notes about what they were doing when they were there. Um, and then they stopped, looks like they stopped using them. And then they went to a filing system. And, um, but they still use these numbering system from that Melville started with that uh, looks like they kept through those records. So those applications survived that were in that filing system. It looks like they went to like index cards. I've seen some index cards. So they went to this index card filing system and then they had stuff actually in folders and the, the application survived. So the SUNY Maritime College Library has the records, and they're over in the Bronx, all on the other side of New York, by the Throgsneck Bridge. Uh, I haven't been there in two years, so I'm looking forward to going back, hopefully in the spring. Um, I'm actually, I mentioned to you, looking to do a uh, trip this spring up the East Coast and stopping off uh, from Savannah up to New York City, and mm -hmm. going to be stopping in different um little seaside towns, port towns, any, any of them that have uh, maritime museums and lighthouses. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and I'm going to be stopping at those and, and not just visiting the museums, but I, I've reached out to some of them and told them what I'm about Snook Harbor and that there's sailors from everywhere. So I'm trying to figure out the ones that came from these areas and then go talk to the folks at the museums and also invite if there's historical societies, genealogy size around there and talk to them about it um, because most of them have never heard of Snook Harbor, don't know anything about it and realize that they're people from their areas that eventually ended up in there mm -hmm. um, that are interesting. So I'm going to work my way up, eventually get to, I'm going to go to uh, the Mariners Museum in Virginia, which I'm looking forward to seeing the actual USS Monitor and then working my way up uh, to New York and stop and doing some research uh, at SUNY Maritime and visiting Snook Harbor in like the May timeframe, May, June timeframe. Yeah. But I'm going to be looking to reach out people. And then I'm going to do in the future, another one up, come up your way 
go up to New England, uh, maybe the following year, and stop off and do the same thing. So try to bring some awareness, but also to kind of crowdsource some of the research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of work. Um, I'm retired now, but it takes some time. And I, I like doing things with other people and sharing information. So to me, it'd be fun. Um, I did try to reach out to some colleges. I thought it'd be a great like high school college kind of project. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get a good reaction from a lot of these colleges. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. American history isn't like cool, I guess, these days. But um, when I was in college, <laughs> actually, one of my majors is history. Yeah. I was an economics major and took history because it was fun and easy for me. So yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those well, people that, that can remember all the crazy dates and names. <laughs> well, who knows, you know, somebody might be listening who's uh, really fascinated by all this and might want to volunteer to, to help. Hey, you I'm looking. Yeah. People that are interested in it and I could, you know, I'm interested in uh, sharing and somebody wants to help me. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. Um but it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's like a glimpse of, you're kind of like doing, I mean, it goes back to Revolutionary War time. So it's almost like the history, economic history of New York City, because mm-hmm. when the Erie Canal starts, that's when it explodes and all this trade comes through there to get to the Great Lakes. Yeah. But you know, So these are the guys, passenger ships, all these vessels, military, whatever, they're the guys that actually were the crews on it. So if you're, you know, most of the history is focused on the famous people. Today, there's so much information out there. You can do the histories of the common average people and that have connections to famous things or whatever. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that you can do that now. Where back in the day, it was like almost impossible to do this. Yeah. Um, but it's still a lot of work. And, you know, not everything has been digitized and all that kind of stuff. So sure. eventually yeah. it will be. But in the interim, yeah, you could, you need, need to help. So, yeah, but it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's like you're learning different aspects, not just the maritime, but even the history. I like to read social histories of where these guys are from and areas and mm-hmm. looking through newspaper collections. That's where I find a lot, yeah. um, especially yeah. the guys in new England, you know, when they died, they would write stuff up about them. And that's where you get a lot of details. These small local newspapers. Yep. Same with lighthouses. That's where I found a lot of my most interesting material. Yeah, some great stuff. Yeah. So, Bruce Weir, I want to thank you so much for opening my eyes to this fascinating history. As you said, it relates to, to so many things. It's a, it's a huge subject uh, and uh, absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to visiting that site, which I've never done before in the Noble Marathon. Well, you have to let me go- know when you're mm-hmm. going there. I will. Um, I might be able to sync up and connect with you. You know, they have the New York City Folk Society, the shanties like once a month uh-huh. at Snook Harbor in cool. the building that the Noble has. So they advertise it. And I, I've been there a lot of times I'll, when I go there, I'm, I look to see <laughs> if they're yeah. when they're appearing and schedule around it. And those guys are awesome. It's just yeah. amazing when you're inside of buildings like that. Yeah. And they're the playing. Yeah. Actually, there's a CD, a guy researched way back, back in the 30s, I think, met and recorded a, uh, a lot of the old chanties from the eight guys that were still old from the 1800s. So there's recordings of Sailor Snook Harbor shanties. I have a CD around. Can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, I think I've heard uh, some of that. I think I've, yeah, you a probably web, have. I think there's a website with some of that, if I remember. If, if yeah, so chanties became yeah. popular 
my, mm-hmm. my daughters tease me, dad. Yeah. TikTok. It's, people it's, do. TikTok, uh, it's cool. Yeah. Shanny's are cool now, dad. <laughs> exactly. I'd be singing them, humming them and playing them. And she, they'd yeah. be looking like, oh, dad, you're just crazy. And yeah. now they're like, oh, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to think that maybe uh, there's some uh, spirits of sailors of, of the past uh, enjoying those uh, sea shanty performances there, oh, too. Oh, I bet you. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, Bruce Ware, thank you so much for spending this time with me. And uh, I look forward to hearing about more research and uh, progress with everything you're doing. Uh, and I recommend that people check out your Facebook page as well. Uh, and uh, just thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jerm. Thanks for inviting me. And I've learned some new about, you know, the connections with lighthouses. I knew some about them that there were out there. And then when you came along, I was glad that, um, you know, it's, it's another connection. Every time I turn around, there's some connection to Snook Harbor. It's just amazing. Many thanks to Bruce Weir for sharing his knowledge and passion for the history of Sailor Snug Harbor. It's really a fascinating piece of American history. Check out uslhs.org to learn about all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society has to offer. Remember that donations and memberships help to support this podcast. The episode of Lighthearted that will be posted this coming Sunday will feature interviews with representatives of two Michigan lighthouses, Craig Wilson of Old Mackinac Point and Karen Hintz of Eagle Harbor. Pete Goss, a British yachtsman who has sailed more than 250,000 nautical miles, once said, quote, If you are going to do something, do it now. Tomorrow is too late. End quote. I like that. I do too. As always, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light.